tonight on the podcast. Welcome to the seventh episode of The Fishmongers. Uh, this is one of your co-hosts, Matt. Hi, I'm Kevin. Howdy, I'm Leo. Today we're going to be talking about deep sea fishes, one of my favorite topics in terms of fish biology and just general science. Um, so I figured we will start off today by just going around and talking about what everyone's favorite deep sea fish is. And let's start with Kevin. So I probably should say like uh, some kind of cusk eel because I actually have worked on them. But I think if push comes to shove, I think I would pick, you know, like one of the football fishes, like hymantolophids, uh, one of those, you know, uh, deep sea angler fishes that are just all globular and uh, spherical. For some reason, I just have a soft spot for like just kind of like oddball, like round fish. Because some of my favorite fish are just, yeah, just, they're just kind of goofy looking. Uh, I'm definitely going to go with the blob sculpin. Well, there's a, a few different ones. The one, you know, the one that people like is the super pink one off the the southern hemisphere. But my favorite one is actually a one off the sort of California coast called Cycroludes frictus, which is a looks more like a it's like gray and has like a big white face. So it's kind of like a possum colored one rather than the pink one. But it's equally awesome. And I even like one time in a, right as I was finishing undergrad. They caught one off of Monterey Bay, uh, so I was an undergrad in San Diego, and I drove all the way to Monterey Bay to go get, get the specimen and bring it back down to uh, San Diego because I think they're so cool. So now they have all of my hard work and labor on that. We uh, skeletonized it actually. So, like a- does that does that also like sag down and look very sad when you pull it out of the water, like the famous blobfish? Uh, it's not quite as no. It doesn't have like the same kind of level of nose. But it's equally mm-hmm. kind of sad and pathetic, like tadpole-y. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. when you skeletonize it, it doesn't have anything like that. It was pretty cool because it was actually like, I don't know, like it was probably like two feet long. And like if you held the skull up to the light, you could see the light right through it because they're so, you know, their skeleton's so weak and poorly ossified. Yeah, one of my grad students recently gave me a, a photograph of a blobfish, kind of like the sad droopy blobfish, but it's wearing... <laughs> I don't know, like a kind of like a golf hat or something. It's all <laughs> so I have it framed on my desk right now. Like like where students come in, like if they come and get advising, it's like the first thing they see, and everyone is very confused by this picture. Is it like a meme? It's like the meme's face, but with like weird clothing on it. So it's it it's so do your kinda, it's a pretty like, odd photo. Did your student like Photoshop the the clothing onto it, or did they find it just roaming the internet somewhere? I think they bought it somewhere on the internet. Okay. So that brings me to a question, though. I know we have to still let Matt do it. I apologize. Uh, but so why, of all the deep sea anglerfishes, why Hymantolophus? Why the the football fish? Not like watching football right now. <laughs> like, no, because there's just like so many good ones, right? I'm not saying no, that's no, no. not a good one. Like why of hey, all you, of them? Are you judging my No, cuz I picked that one because I think well, cuz I think when they call it a football fish, it's not American football, right? It's like soccer football cuz it's just I think it's the fact that it looks like a basketball, right? It's just so goofy looking. Like some of my favorite like fishes deep sea or otherwise are like these blobby spherical things. So like you know, different kinds of puffers and like the orbicular velvet fish and um uh, what is it, the Pacific, you know, spiny lump sucker, just like goofy looking things, right? Or like various, you know, frog fishes, just trying to imagine this thing swimming and trying to do fishy things when it's just so not hydrodynamic. So it's more and just the spherical-ness. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I should have like yeah. clarified that. It's like because yeah, there are some crazy looking like angler fishes out there. But just the roundness of it all, right? How it's so very like basketball or volleyball like. It looks like a beach ball or something, and you're just like, whoa, that's I don't know, just something kind of goofy yeah. and endearing about it. They're that's also a little bigger to too. Like they're actually yeah. of size, yeah. whereas I think most people are surprised by how small most anglerfish are. Those ones can be bigger than a softball, probably not as big as a maybe I mean they get that there's a couple that I've seen that have gotten, you know, kind of approaching, you know, size three soccer ball or something like that. Yeah, I mean they're not huge, but again, just the kind of I don't know. Just there's something just uh, kind of uh, odd and you know weird about that kind of shape. It's so uh, like unfish like. They do kind of have a classic anglerfish body plan too, in terms of what people think of. I think when they think of an anglerfish, and not ne- they don't necessarily think of all some of the more stranger anglerfish diversity. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that is kind of what people think about is like that kind of globular ball shaped anglerfish. Right, with like a tail just kind of sticking out of it, out of the back somewhere, but otherwise the body is all weird looking. So how about you, Dr. Davis? I am predisposed, obviously, to tripod fishes because it's also my Twitter handle and things. So like that, you know, obviously I like those a lot. So I probably, so for the sake of this argument, I won't say that one just because, you know, I'll pick a different one. Um, Oh, so before we get to that, how did you pick? Like, how did you pick that particular genus of tripod fish for your um, for your Twitter handle? I don't know. Well, on some level, it's just because I really like them. Um, you know, they're kind of unique among deep sea fish in the near deep sea fishes in the sense that they do have those kind of interesting, like elongated fin elements that they use to prop themselves up on, like substrates. And like, not all of them have like super long ones, but they do vary quite a bit in length. And then with their like weird pectoral fins that they kind of hold out in this like spindly array, uh, they just kind of have a kind of interesting look to them. And I just kind of like, they just kind of like sit on the bottom, kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, there's not really anything else quite like them. Whereas Yeah, they're, they're pretty unique among Rafe and Fish. Part of the reason I picked Bathy Taros for my Twitter handle at the time too is because I like them, but also um, because Bathy is in the name, which already kind of implies some aspect of deepness for, you know, somebody who's familiar with the terminology you know bathy meaning deep and then teroas being like you know pectoral skeleton and things like that so wings and things like that so because they have the crazy pectoral fins too i mean i think that's what's so cool about them yeah, although, I, although cool. I thought you were gonna say leposaurus well that was the one i was gonna that is my other favorite i was gonna say other than just saying bathy teroas so that was the other one i would pick aside from my twitter handle um, that is the so that that one actually, I tried to make that one my Twitter handle, and somebody else already had it. Oh no! Truth comes out. It is your favorite. Yeah. <laughs> grumble, grumble. Well, so you're Chicago. The one, the one thing, uh, the one New thing York. a Leposaurus has is the teeth, right? So like, yeah. So what makes uh, a Leposaurus cool for people who might not know? Well, they have the they have the like really large kind of like palatine fangs, so they have enormous teeth relative to their mouth which is pretty sweet and then they have these really large dorsal fins so they kind of have like a big sail fin not on like a you know, like a marlin or something um it's or a dimetrodon but obviously those oh. are terrestrial not aquatic but something like yeah, that right like a giant thing, yeah. sail fin no it's like freakishly big yeah and they're big and long, other, no, big nothing else in that group predators. has that so pretty cool and it's one of the bigger ones too right because since we're talking about deep sea fish being like tiny it's actually pretty they can get pretty big can't they yeah, yeah, it's like a wholly pelagic. Unlike the Bathy Taros one, which is mostly benthic, the, they're pretty much only pelagic. We all pretty much pick giant deep sea things, like outside of sharks or something. 
<laughs> yeah. We picked among the big, larger of the deep sea things. All of us did that. Oh, wait. Uh, can I also, like, besides the Hamantilophus, I just thought of another one that's, like, really cool. Um, uh, the Apusthoproctid, you know, the the thing with the weird dome head. The barrel eyes, yeah. Barrel eyes, that's it. I couldn't remember what the common yeah. name was. Yeah, so there was a really great video, and my favorite one is to if, you know, people should watch the Stephen Colbert when he was on the Colbert Report, he talks about it, and it's just like they oh, take, he talks about it. Yeah, they so they, it's funny. So they start showing the video. For, uh, so was, there's a famous video that was taken by I think Bruce Robeson at the Monterey Bay Aquarium mm-hmm. Research Institute, and they like take his sort of scientist monotonous, like here we see the you know <laughs> barrel eye with its eyes. And he and he's like, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. And then he like rants off, and he's just like. Look at this thing! It's got a big noggin. It's got like a Star Wars like <laughs> X-wing, like cat, like like you know cockpit. You know, look at its uh, those things in front of its eyes. Those aren't its eyes. Those are its nostrils. You know, it's like it's pretty good. Yeah, I show oh, that every year. That. I show that every year in uh, both my intro bio class and my ichthyology class. The Stephen Colbert going over it. So any other really cool deep sea fish that we should talk about, like independent of like going over other things? I'm just not that into like the sharks. Like, I, you know, it's really cool how old like Greenland sharks are, but like I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Or hagfish. I like the are lantern cool. sharks, but oh, you know, they're they're interesting. Um, yeah. How about some of the uh, like the the cookie cutter sharks? They can get kind I, of deep. Those, those are, are very cool. cool. Well, the sharks are tricky because so many of them actually go deep and then they come back up. And so, like, I mean, gray white sharks spend a lot of time in the deep sea. Right. So. Oh, right. That. It's, um, it's like it's like lots of sharks spend time in the deep sea. Yeah, like I think Leo, you sent us that uh, that link, right? That they just found that thing off the uh, the west coast of the U.S. where the the females go down, right, and hang out down there for a real long stretch of time. Yeah, it's like remarkably long periods of time. But that gets into like one of the like most important things to talk about uh, when we're talking about deep sea fish is like what makes a deep sea mm. fish a deep sea fish, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like the I would say that. If, see if you guys agree, but like I think the classic definition is like some fish that lives below 200 meters, right? And yeah, right. I, 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 I agree with that. So uh, the 200 meters, the key thing here is that it's below the photic zone. Yeah, or like the most of it, right? It, like that gets like mm-hmm. the exact like so that means like there's at 200 meters, like all visible light is not gone, but it's you're down into a kind of worse than what you would get like from a security camera that's all green and black you're like down in just like a little blue you know i think the blue can actually go depending on how clear the water and stuff can actually go pretty far but it's by 200 meters you're not like signaling with you know like you're not you're not having a color pattern of you know that's stupendous or anything like that yeah you're starting to get a, a serious change that could impact the biology of the organisms that live there well, it's also past the effective like photosynthesis range, right? That's going to be the the sort of the tricky part, right? Is like once it gets down there, you you know um, you're going to have a whole different sort of ecosystem around that, and there's a lot less nutrients available, right? Exactly. And so, do you guys think that makes sense? I, a- I, th- I think it makes sense in a broad definition of like what a deep sea is, because it does have other implications for like deep reefs and things too. And so it's just like a blanket statement of like, this is the deep sea. I I think it's a reasonable description. Oh, I was just going to say the one question then is it gets tricky when you talk about vertical migration 
right? Because then it's like, oh, what if it only spends part of its time below 200 meters, right? It's just one of those things where it's like, we probably can come to an agreement on it, but there's always going to be these weird edge cases or these exceptions that make it hard to classify them perfectly. Right. And that's my, that's more my question. It's like, it's a, like a general descriptor. I think 200 meters is totally like saying the deep sea is 200 meters, I think is totally fine. The question is, what makes a deep sea fish a deep sea fish, right? Like it also, it's the same thing with a coral reef. Like if you're swimming around near a coral reef or you're sometimes <laughs> on it, like, you know, some right. sharks you're swim coming by. in to feed, but yeah. Right. right. And so it, there's problems, but I like at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of things from my perspective, um, that aren't necessarily consistently true across all deep sea fishes. Right. And so there's almost no cases where, talking about them as some sort of natural unit makes any sort of sense because like something that like a snailfish, which are these like tadpole shaped things that are the deepest dwelling fishes that kind of look like snot or even kind of <laughs> sperm like, um, like they're sitting on the bottom is very different than Matt's lancet fish, Kevin's football fish. My, my blob sculpin's actually kind of looking a lot, a little bit like that. And they're related. <laughs> not surprisingly, they're related. Um, you know, it's basically like a, a, you know, it's basically just got a tail, like a tail and body, like a, a little bit more like a regular fish, but still all blobby. But like, that's where I get into the question is like, it's only useful in a very specific yet broad sense. Like these things went down there and so they're going to have adip- like it's well, all- it's 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 like one of the it, well, it's kind of like the largest habitat on Earth. But within that, there's a ton of different kinds of habitats. So as a blanket statement, it doesn't really cover the kind of biodiversity that you get in all these different types of habitats that are found throughout that whole wide swath. Right. I mean, it's it's because like a deep reef is in the deep sea, but that's a very different habitat than like a benthic, (coughs) like a benthic, you know, seafloor versus a pelagic completely open swimming thing. Well, I guess if we wanted to, you know, look at it, right. If we go with the sort of general, um, you know, um, metric of, oh, it's below 200 meters, then you can sort of generalize and say it's just all the stuff that have had to evolve um, to deal with the absence of sunlight. Right. I mean, that's all, that's basically the only thing you're doing with, because like at that Mm -hmm. depth, like there's parts of the ocean as you go deeper where you have like the minimum level of oxygen is in the ocean is a little lower than that. There's Mm -hmm. pressure is increasing as you go down, you know, you know, sort of more linearly, like it's, it's it the only thing it's really addressing is for the most part is light and then the sort of byproducts of that like like Kevin was saying like if there's no plant material unless the things are migrating further up to the surface or they're predators right like you drop off the primary producers and so everything is kind of relying on predation there's no you know you're not hunting you know you're not going out and hunting berries to like sort of add to your like caribou diet like you just <laughs> got to be like eating caribou right. all the time right and and so that, but I think that's the only thing you have in common down at those things, right? Because the pressure at two hundred is completely different than pressure at five thousand meters and everything else like that. Right, like Matt was saying, right? Because it's such an enormous volume. Once you get down there, there's a bajillion different ways you can succeed there, but you have these constraints, and one of them is the the major one is just the lack of light, lack of sunlight. Obviously, there's light down there, as I'm sure you guys will talk about. Right. And, and because of that, yeah, I mean, you get 
all kinds of different kind of convergent adaptations across all sorts of animals, you know, other than fishes too, but all sorts of things where you see the same things evolve over and over again that handle that absence of light or the changes in pressure and all those kinds of stuff. So, um, such as bioluminescence, which we all like. Who doesn't love, everybody loves bio, that's like a, uh, you know, all even kids like right. like without any knowledge like bioluminescence because it's like fireworks, right? Because yeah, exactly. Or like fireflies, right? Who doesn't love fireflies? And that's like the best known, right, or the most commonly encountered example of bioluminescence. But I think but, a lot of people kind of don't think about bioluminescence in the context of the deep sea that there actually is light in the deep sea. It's just not sunlight, and a lot of people just think the deep sea is this completely dark place, but the reality is there's all sorts of things making light. Um, and that kind of blows people's minds when they start to think about it beyond um, just the sun being like the main provider of light, that you can have a, an environment where basically the organisms, animals, bacteria, and all kinds of things are actually producing and emitting the light. Yeah, no, definitely. And that, you know, I mean, like, and you can make an argument that more of the earth because so little, there's more deep sea than there is habitable sort of mountainous areas and things like that. Like that, like in terms of pure volume of habitat, like places where organisms live at any given time, more is lit by bioluminescence than the sun, just because this like bioluminescence is glowing worldwide and the sun is restricted to about half of the earth at any time. So you can actually like, you know, do the math and it works out if you do that, which is a little cheeky, but like, you know, the, the idea is true. And in, and in terms of fishes, some of the fishes that have all the biomass are all ones that make light, like cyclothony, lantern fishes are all light producing fishes. And of course, right, the, there's just more, right, not just the volume, right, there's just more surface area of water with the extra volume that's being lit by the bioluminescence. Though obviously, I would assume if you were to measure it all, right, the amount of lumens that are being you know, provided by the sun is like, you know, orders of magnitude. Yeah, more gargantuan. Than it's got to be gargantuan. Yeah. And like, yeah, ridiculously. Yeah. Well, the light coming off of bioluminescent organisms don't produce a lot of heat either. So it's not like mm -hmm. searing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing's getting a sunburn from like bioluminescent <laughs> light, right? So like, right. Um, but only, it has a only lot Kevin. of other, you know, functions. Only <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so bright. I don't think you can get your vitamin D that way. You can't fill your house with like dinoflagellate dinosaur containers like you can buy if on only. Geek or something. <laughs> yeah, but we're definitely uh I don't know. I like I you know, I like lately I've I constantly are buying like any sort of bioluminescent toy thing we ever can get like like I just got squirt guns it's like where you could actually mix the chemicals for bioluminescence, you know, and Oh yeah, them. you sent us some pictures of that. You know, you, so you can buy those. And like I've I've bought the Katie my or my wife actually got me the uh bioluminescent dinosaur as a present once and I've bought test tubes of them. I can't get enough of playing with that stuff. It's just like a little hard to just a touch too hard to keep alive. Like mm. the long term or like I'm not willing I'm not impatient enough to keep it kinda going. Because I don't know, have you guys ever tried to keep any of those alive? I have not. I have ordered the dinoflagellates once, but they did not last long. And then yeah. The, the tricky part is that they're on a cycle, so which I don't 100% understand because their dinoflagellates are just these little barely present little tiny creature things. And like, but you can only, they'll only produce light for like eight hours of the 24 hours a day. So they have a period where if you knock them, so normally dinoflagellates, when we think of them, these are the things that like make the ocean glow blue or like if you've ever been anywhere where like you step 
along the yeah. ocean beach and like there's a big bloom of them and so you can see your f- footprints kind of glow like a or all those videos fever. of dolphins swimming through them yeah um but they actually only and so when they get disturbed they release it um but they only will do that for like eight or ten hours a day depending on what species you're looking at so all the rest of the time they won't release it like they only they know when it's night but they don't know it because they have eyes they know it because every day they've been doing it at this time Right. There's presumably some sort of light sensitivity that allows them to do that. But you can't like just put them in dark and like 10 minutes later, shake them. It's like you can kind of move them slowly from like nighttime. Like I think when I've moved them before, I've gotten them maybe like a three or four hour shift off of like the time that they were sent to me on. But it's like by that time, I would like there were just too many of them had died and stuff that I couldn't use them. But I tried to use them, you know, for various like public exhibit stuff at the Field Museum and things like that. So they have some kind of internal, right, clock, and they have what is the term for it? A zeitgeber, right? The, the, that they calibrate with the actual like day-night cycle, and so I, you can. I've never heard of that word. Oh, it's like some German word. Literally, I think yeah, it was like no time kidding. giver. What was that? <laughs> no kidding. It's yeah, it's like German time word. giver or something like that. It's like the technical term for the organ for how organ. I've never heard of this word before either. I oh, like it. Okay. I like it though. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds appropriately scientific, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just throw some German words at it. But yeah, so bioluminescence has um, evolved independently about 27 different times in fishes, which was um, something that a study Leo and I worked on as part of NSF funding uh, identified about two years ago. Yeah, that was, and that, you know, the, the funny thing is that we all picked, other than uh, Kevin, we picked deep sea fishes that don't bioluminesce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers, credit, Kevin. And although technically the bacteria glow in that case, but yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. You guys should explain, right? Because there's multiple ways in which you can get bioluminescence as a fish. Yeah. So there are some fishes that do bioluminescence in combination with symbiosis of a back with a bacteria. And then the bacteria in that case is producing and emitting the light. And then there are other fishes that are capable of producing the light all the chemicals basically necessary for that whole process on their own. Um, Although the mechanisms of that are not exactly fully clear for most of the fishes. Um, So it could be that there are aspects they pick up from their diet or other things, but for most fish, that's pretty not well known. Right. We definitely know that some of them don't rely on bacteria, but we don't know what components may be uh, required from their diet. Yeah. And then there's still a lot to know about all of this. But and there's definitely there's a group of toadfishes that get all of the chemicals from their diet. So they even have photophores, which are the little light producing organs all over their body. But they have to eat little tiny shrimp called ostracods in order to get the chemicals to do everything. So they're explicitly getting it from their diet, which is different yet. Oh, I was just going to ask of the 27 times that it's shown up uh, across uh, all of fishes, what's the breakdown between you know bacterial based versus diet based versus the various different ways? Most of is them are with bacteria, more... but the ones okay. that the ones that are doing it on their own, um, generally speaking, tend to have more species. So things like lantern fishes and dragon fishes are kind of more species rich than something like a flashlight fish. Um, but overall, in terms of just like raw independent numbers, more of them are picking up the bacteria from the environment and doing it that way and storing it in some sort of an organ or some sort of a pouch or like the, um, you know, like the esca of a lure of an anglerfish, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. uh, the numbers... It's not even quite like two thirds, though. It's about, but it's about two thirds of them are back, mm-hmm. are get what we called it in the paper intrinsic, so that it meant versus extrinsic. So we lumped the 
the toadfishes that eat the things with the bacteria. Um, just because having a third category that only happens in one group was just kind of out there. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you know, because they're all independent anyway. Um, but it makes sort of sense if the, it, it's like slightly easier to like have a pouch near your anus that can glow than it is to like either somehow get the chemicals from, you know, your genes or some horizontal gene transfer where the gene of some bacteria gets it. Like it, it makes sense that the bacterial stuff would be a little bit more common, right? It's, it's yeah. it, you know, if it were the other way, I wouldn't say that it's wrong. I would just say it was, I would, it wouldn't have been what I, yeah, exactly. I, I would, wouldn't have gone like, no, but I would have said that surprised me. Yeah, exactly. That kind of, well, thing. a lot of people ask like, <clears throat> um, you know, in terms of the bacteria, they're surprised about this concept that the fishes are picking up this bacteria. But the bacteria is pretty ubiquitous in this marine environment. And, you know, just as a clarification, too, like you don't really find this bioluminescent bacteria in freshwater habitats. So you don't see this in freshwater at all. It's pretty much extreme. It's exclusively a marine kind of phenomenon when it comes to aquatic things. Um, but the bacteria itself, because of it's so ubiquitous in the habitats, it's you don't really see very strict kind of like coevolution with fishes. You basically just see fishes right like pick up the bacteria that is in that habitat where they are, um, and there's yeah. not a lot of like host specificity there. So with symbiosis, what that means is that the like sometimes when you have something like that are like two organisms that are super intertwined, one has to when one of sort of splits into two species, the the symbiont will split at the same time. They're like so tightly sort of adhere to each other that they there's a benefit to like a lot of specificity um so this would be like certain kinds of you know i can't think of it like a super good one off the top of my head but like there's plenty of like mutualist like even like clownfishes to some degree have like with sea anemones like you rarely have like a pure like one-to-one relationship but a lot of times you'll have a lot more continuity and then matt was saying in most fishes um yeah but like in these one like in most fishes the you you basically will have whatever bacteria are in the water around you, right? So you can get the same species of pony fish, let's say, from Madagascar in the Western Indian Ocean and from Taiwan in the Western Pacific or slash Eastern Indian Ocean, you know, in the boundary there. Like when you're that the the, the same spe- they will have the local bacteria, not the same. Even though the fish is the same species, they won't have the same bacteria as each other. Um, Although I've talked a bit to Carol Baldwin at the Smithsonian, and there is some evidence um, that uh, the flashlight fishes may actually be passing it on to their children. That's the <laughs> only group that anyone sort of hinted at, but I don't think it's been published. Um, mm. But uh, I think a few different people kind of working on that together. Um, so that's a possibility. But again, nothing else is like that. So flashlight fishes, if you don't know what they are, they're the ones that have like a light organ under the eye. They're pretty much the only bioluminescent thing you'll ever really see in a, a bioluminescent fish you'll see in a public aquarium alive. Every once in a while you'll see pine cone fishes. Um, but those are the kind of the two kind of coral reefy deep reef um, bioluminescent fish. Well, I have, I've gotten a few email questions too from people that have tried to keep them where they're like, oh, I bought these fish because I wanted them to glow. And then the glow just went away, you know, like after a period of time and it's like well it's because all the bacteria probably died because people mm-hmm. don't necessarily know that the glow is actually coming from the bacteria in those cases um i think there so was a colony goes away i think there was an aquarium i want to say it was in ohio but it could be wrong on that but it was in the midwest 
um, where they were actually trying to do experiments where they were like blasting, like growing the bacteria up in plates and then seeding it into the water in huge amounts and were able uh-huh. to keep them going for a long period of time. Um, but obviously that's public aquaria. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's like public yeah. aquaria level, not your average home aquarist. That being said, there's definitely some aquarists that might be willing to put that time in, right? Like, there's, oh, yeah. there's no shortage of like experts and fanatical dedication. In a good way. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in a good way. But you can imagine if you were all like jazzed up and you're like, oh, I'm going to buy this flashlight fish and have this glowing fish. And, you know, they're like, what, right. 60 to $70 each. And so you buy it. They're and... probably more over over 100 most of the time. I would say probably yeah, okay. 130, 140 is normal. Yeah, well, so you, you spend that much on a fish and you get it home and it glows for a couple of weeks and then the glow goes away. And otherwise, they're not exactly the most exciting looking fish. <laughs> they're they're pretty much just like all black kind of. Yeah. They're cool fish, but yeah, once they lost the glow. <laughs> when you were at the field museum, do you know how like the shed kept their flashlight fish, the glow going? Uh, the shed and every other public aquarium other than this one that I think again was in Ohio, uh, kept the, the glow glowing by replacing them. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but the glow right. will last, you know, uh, it could last upwards of four or five months, you know. Like it depends how long it's been out of the ocean, right? So if you buy one that's been in a store for a really long time, you can be in a world of hurt. But if you get a fresh one, you know, it'll last a while. I mean, I had a pine cone fish for a while, which is also um same situation with bacteria. Um and they have a like a light organ in their sort of lower jaw. And, you know, they they that thing was I think that was like seven or eight hundred dollars. Um and uh he never really ever took to eating, so he uh, died oh, no. w- died well before he stopped glowing. Mm. <laughs> he made a nice <laughs> nice specimen, though. Um, oh yeah, I'll bet those are Ex- cool. Except for that, he kind of got digested a little, like like he died like on a Saturday, and I didn't see him till Monday. Oh, right. So he was at work. Yeah, but you know, it's all good. So while we're talking about aquariums, maybe we should talk about. Um, why you don't really see a lot of deep sea fishes in aquariums, just generally speaking, uh, other than the obvious uh, like uh, problems associated with keeping everything pressurized or something. There are a number of other reasons why deep sea fish are challenging to keep in an aquarium, if you even bothered to get one up to the surface alive enough to keep it pressurized. So maybe we should chat about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, there are some, again, right on that, on these things that we talk about that kind of go down below 200 meters. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean like a, shark that goes down below 200 meters i mean like there are some fish that kind of live around 200 meters and you get a few of those um like the and they're almost exclusively i would guess deep reef kinds of things or Uh maybe or maybe like if you have a giant tank um like monterey will have something like a mola mola the ocean sunfish which is sturdy pretty sturdy guy yeah or gal yeah like um i remember visiting the monterey bay aquarium a long time ago when i was in grad school and then uh, having a tour of the behind the scenes and they were talking about some of the sort of challenges of that right they had to set it up not just the pressure but because these fish never um, if they're in the midwater they never encounter any like surface or substrate they had to design the tanks to actively like repel them away from the glass and stuff otherwise they would just constantly damage themselves by inadvertently running into things because it was not a thing they ever had to like deal with in their natural setting. Yeah, they're like birds hitting a skyscraper. They can't handle yeah. that. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, because like the 
the, the main thing is that they don't their sensory systems are like super attuned to like water motion, right? So when you're in the deep sea, mm-hmm. you're kind of like a water motion like antenna. Like a lot of the fish do a lot of weird things to sort of try and stretch out like the sense like the sensory field or however you want to describe that. Like 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 a gulp reel or something will kind of hang with its tail going down low, so it'll you know, and so any water movement they'll be able to detect what direction and everything it's coming from because they really live in this like three dimensional world that's completely different than ours that's super two dimensional, and so the problem they have is that system is not at all prepared, like Kevin was saying, to run into a wall, right? Like there's yeah. no there's no tricks like the blind cave tetra that also lives in darkness has like he is constantly or she is constantly worrying about running into a wall and so its lateral line system is super ready for that kind of specialization but these deep sea things if they've been you know if the lineage has been in the like open water for a long period of time there's no reason for them to have it doesn't mean they yeah, won't they have, have no concept of a barrier it's like there's no right. there's nothing to run into <laughs> so it's pretty interesting though but also kind of sad because so many of the fishes that I like, you just never get to see alive unless it's like with an ROV or something, you know, which is kind of And that's sad. even re- new, right? I mean, like. Yeah, exactly. Within the last like decade. Yeah. Like, like all the videos we get, I would say that like it feels like, what, 80% of them up until up until like 2015 were from Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. Yeah. And then there's been like Okeanos and all these like more social media has like opened up more videos for those kinds of things they never are like super into the deep sea fish i mean if they see them they'll point them out but they're all you know they have to have a goal and it's not like you know go find a big pile of lantern fishes so leo can see what they look like right and they often look at those from a distance you just see like the cloud of them so you don't really get a good view of any individual species and the fish obviously because they're moving once they zoom in on them, it's kind of hard to keep them in the frame. And at some point, the people operating the ROV just seem to give up. They're just like, ah, we got 10 seconds of it. It's good. Right. <laughs> like, they don't, well, I imagine it's they don't chase it super around. super expensive to run, you know, to operate that thing. So, that, you know, they'll just, they'll video what they can, but then they're like back to what we were here for in the first place. Right. Yeah. Or I think it's just easier for them to get like crab videos. It's something just like sitting out on the bottom. They do a lot of benthic things where they just like hone in on them because they're just sitting there. But right. the pelagic stuff, it's hard to get those videos. But I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, I know you don't currently have fish, Kevin. But like, do you have you ever tried to like just even get videos of your stupid fish at home, Matt? Like, like it's oh, yeah. so it's hard to get. Hard. It's, it's impossible to like get a video of a, like an actual free swimming fish because it just constantly moves. Like it's coming out of focus. It's like it's a total oh, yeah. disaster. Like, right, I don't know so if you're trying to do that in an ROV, it would be horrible. It would be really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just, you know, well, and it's like even some of the things I like, because, you know, like I did my PhD on lizard fishes. Um, and even that, I'd never see lizard fishes in an aquarium. I don't think I've ever seen a lizard fish in a public aquarium. And I get it, they eat everything, but I've never seen one. Like maybe you guys have, but I've never seen a lizard fish in an aquarium. I'm just trying to think. Maybe in like its own tank? Yeah, even in its own tank, I've never seen any. Like, it's just, I don't know why, but, like, because they're kind of cool looking. I think in Wash, at the, in the Seattle Aquarium, I once saw one. I think it was the Seattle Aquarium. Every once in a while, you see them in the pet trade about, you yeah. know, once or twice a year, you know. Yeah, I, I ordered one, what, like a year ago, and it arrived dead. I was so unhappy. Oh, no. <laughs> I was pretty mad. Yeah, I mean, that's the only I one I've ever seen one. there. Did you get but a anyway, refund? that's, yeah. Oh, no, I didn't even buy. I didn't actually ask for a refund. I probably should have. Um, but, I, I, you know, I kept it. I took some fluorescent pictures of it and some other things. I put it in a freezer. But Took a tissue so like, sample. 
Yeah, I did. I took a tissue sample. I mean, I used it for stuff. I took, you know, I got some yeah. nice fluorescent photos of it and things. Um, yeah. But it was dead. It was unfortunate because I was like, yeah. but now That's the toadfish is in the tank that it would have been in. So. No, those are cool, but not deep sea. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're interesting. It's true. I, once or twice I've ordered, there's the bioluminescent toadfish, the one that eats the little shrimps. Those are in the pet trade. It's about twice, two to three times as often as the lizard fish. So we did get, Matt and I did get one of those once. Yeah, midshipmen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we were both here in Kansas. That was pretty fun. We got some nice pictures yeah. of them glowing. Yeah, that cool. was pretty awesome. So that's the only sort of, I guess, well, I guess any of the, I guess I've, yeah, I guess I got video of all the flashlight fishes too, but they're just, everyone's kind of seen that one. Mm-hmm. Still nice to get your own photos though. Yeah. Well, when we were on that boat in San Diego, like we got some things that were coming up. They were still alive and they were still bioluminescing, like some of the land fishes were. But it was still hard to photograph them on the boat because the boat was shaking and stuff. So it was hard to get any kind of good photography going on there for that. Plus, um, the ambient light, I assume, would mess that all up. Yeah, the boat, the boat's light. And I also figure, like, if you're being, like, some aspect of those light organs has to just, like, go. I'm getting dragged behind a boat yeah. at three miles yeah. an hour and just start flashing <laughs> yeah. or trying to do anything to like, you know, because like, you know, I don't think that there's any real evidence that lantern fishes are like trying to like, you know, outshine, you know, the, a predator. But, you know, you might try anything if like all of a sudden you're, you know, kind of swooping around. In a situation <laughs> well, like even that. just the stressed outness, they may have, you know, blown out all their chemicals that they were using at that moment in time and. You know, they may have exhausted their supply by the time they're up on the boat. I've never, like, tried to quantify this. What percentage of those, that's, so there's about 5,000 fish that kind of qualify as deep sea fish. What percentage of those do you think are bioluminescent? Uh, a lot of them. I, I think we, I think we counted this up one time and it was like something like 70%. That, I was going to say 65, again, about, about two thirds of them. I agree. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I think you and I sat down and calculated this once. I think we even have a spreadsheet for it. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, but I think, it, I think it was <laughs> about right. 70%. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause like one of the most species rich clades of sharks is bioluminescent. So that's the, yeah. the lantern sharks, which are the ones that have like a glowing belly and there's a few other sharks. And like you were saying, a lot of the species rich deep sea groups are the sort of self luminescent one. I think the only really species rich group that's bacterial is probably the angler fishes. Yep. Mm. And there's hundreds of those, of the bioluminescent varieties. I don't think anything else is particularly species rich that's bacterial. I mean, there's yeah. plenty, there's a lot of things that are like 40 to 50, but like. Well, like in our paper, when we talked about the bioluminescent independent evolutions within Rayfin fishes, which was, again, like 27 independent times, we did highlight um, some of the lineages that speciated more rapidly given the age at which the clade we hypothesized to have evolved. Um, and things like dragonfishes and landfishes were up there and anglerfishes. Like there, there were the things that used bioluminescence predominantly for communication and not necessarily camouflage. Cause we, I guess we haven't really even talked about that, that a lot, in a lot of cases, a lot of fishes are using bioluminescence actually to like hide themselves so they don't get eaten uh, in that three dimensional environment. Like Leo was talking about, cause it's, for a lot of the pelagic ones that do it, they are trying to hide their silhouette from any kind of like downwelling light, um, especially if they're vertically migrating up to go feed. Um, and we more or less found that things that use that bioluminescence for camouflage, they don't 
they're not necessarily speciating because they're bioluminescence, but with things that use bioluminescence for uh, uh, communication, they are. So we've actually had a couple of papers on that topic, um, kind of as part of this NSF grant, looking at the impacts bioluminescence has on how things evolve. Um, and certainly lanternfishes are one of these ones where we found they have these species-specific you know, light organ patterns, um, and they have this possibility, kind of like fireflies, of communicating with the light, and that could possibly be a, a mechanism for speciation for them. Right, because to some degree, bioluminescence can act like color patterns in birds and butterflies, so there's all these reasons, or beetles or anything, there's all these reasons when like the female generally has the choice of males, that males will start getting colorful or whatever, and clearly... In the lanternfishes, there's something, you know, and presumably in the dragon, some of the dragonfishes and things like that, like there's patterns that they're going on that like the females can select for, you know, whatever, a, a wider array of lights or the more separation, some signal gets picked up. And if there's a, any sort of preference, if like part of the population has a preference for one or the other and starts moving that way, you can, it, you sort of create this mechanism for separation. And then um, also the, that same thing, it also has a mechanism for recognizing it. Right. So they, you know, and that's kind of what's driving that diversification or, you know, much like more, there's more of them than you would expect given how old they are. Right. There, there is some number of species that, you know, if the average fish every million years, a new species pops out, Every once in a while, there's going to be one that's slower and one that's faster. In the case with all these things that are communicating, there's more of those per million years than you would otherwise expect or whatever. Yeah. So is there a correlation between using it for communication and whether or not it's intrinsic or extrinsic? Uh, yes, there is. I mean, for the most part, a lot of the ones that are, in terms of raw species numbers, the ones that are the higher in species richness are more intrinsic, but though one kind of it, they're, they're kind of two major, well, I guess three kind of exceptions to that, which are things like the flashlight fishes, which are probably using it for communication, but then they're, they're flapping up and down, right? Their organ that has the bacteria and then the angler fishes, um, and then, um, pony fishes. But in the, in the case of pony fishes and flashlight fishes, they have some kind of control over the display of the light. They aren't necessarily producing the light, but they do have some anatomical control over how it's displayed. Um, like which shutters. allows for Yeah, like shutters. So that has some behavioral applications uh, as well. Right. Where in Is the it, case of the intrinsic ones, they could be turning it on and off with like nerve innervations. Um, so. Right. If you've got a glowing anus, like you're some sort of barracudina or some other deep sea sort of dagger swimming around in the yeah water. before you go on uh for for our audience it's like I, I'm, I'm sure the question is why would you want a glowing anus does not know these fishes because wouldn't like, that be the first thing that comes to your mind like uh, uh, why it's like uh the traveler's diarrhea of the sea right like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the no. poor chloropthalmid is known for its kind of like glowing anal leakage right so like <laughs> the the idea oh, of anal these things leakage. delightful like matt was talking about with the camouflage so if you the, you if you disrupt your belly so that part of your belly is lit up a bit then you don't create this giant shadow right like our, the closest thing we have in our world to this at all is like an airplane or maybe a really dense cloud that's like isolated goes over us and all of a sudden we all recognize that suddenly it just got darker you know for a second or whatever they, they live in a world all the time where like light is sort of you know could it, at least in theory, be coming and going a bit from above because some bigger organism swims in their way? And so what a lot of fish do 
and you know some of the jewel squids and other organisms do is they'll light up to try and mimic the light coming down and so the glowing anus is just a good way to like make it so you don't have a pure shadow right you have sort of just a little you know right in the middle of your bottom literally like if it's glowing and it kind of radiates out from that you sort of get a zebra stripe pattern and you know there's there's a couple of videos i think they're completely faked of like hatchet fishes or other deep sea fishes that are doing this but like yeah it's counter illumination yeah so it's counter illumination it, it works you know you know it everything about it is logical and makes sense and it's so common of an adaptation in the deep sea or at least in the non bottom dwelling deep sea uh that you know I don't think anyone questions that that's what's going on, but that's why you have a glowing well, anus. Well, it's also interesting too, because like from the perspective of the predator that eats these fishes, a lot of those organisms have evolved mechanisms in their like stomachs and intestinal tracts to basically hide the bioluminescence too, so they aren't glowing because they then they they don't necessarily like want is a weird way to describe it because it's not like they're thinking they want to or don't want to, but like if you're thinking about it, like that fish doesn't want to glow. And so, like, if it swallows something that's glowing, it's to your benefit to have this, like, lining in your stomach to basically block that light from coming out. So a lot of the predatory fishes that are kind of higher up in that food web have that ability as well to block that. Yeah, I mean, I've been – I was just going to say I was cutting – I was cutting open some lantern fishes recently, and it's crazy how dark black both the stomach is itself, but then the intestines are not black as you're going out mm-hmm. closer to the anus – and but the whole peritoneum, so the internal lining of the body cavity is still black, right? So presumably uh-huh. by the time it's done with the stomach, there's no more, you know, luciferin and luciferase that's gonna be glowing anymore. Uh-huh. But they still have a little bit of the sort of black lining on the inner surface to just make sure that nothing comes out of that. Yeah. There's just a lot of really cool kind of adaptations for all of this, but definitely I think it's like the bioluminescence is definitely striking and just the number of independent times it's evolved in vertebrates, which um, again, you know, previous hypothesis had put it at far fewer than, than we did necessarily. Um, but I'll just across all various kind of life forms that do it in oceans. It's like the number of times it's independently evolved is quite high, um, which is just pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, we have a, paper not that that's super exciting necessarily to paper but like it's about to come out on a group called lantern bellies which are i could they look like uh kind of like if you ever gone like fishing for a striped bass they kind of look like a striped bass but like smaller like all of them are about the size maybe of like a like an like a, an adult woman's hand or something like that they kind of max out around that size but even in that group alone and their close relatives it looks like bioluminescence is going to come and go more than we even had in the original paper. It's just constantly yeah. turning on and off in there. And same thing with some of the cardinal fishes. It's probably going to just be coming and going. And these are ones where they must have some natural place for the bacteria to grow. And they're just either going to let the bacteria grow or not mm-hmm. um, to sort of evolve it. You know, there's, you know, so it's, and it, they're pretty different from anatomically from each other too. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's pretty so how, darn cool. So how about the pony fishes, right? Because that's kind of interesting, right? Because they're not uh, particularly deep, um, deep sea fishes, but they still have bioluminescence. Yeah, they're they're an interesting system. Like the the current best sort of ideas on what's going on with them is that they live in mixed groups, right? So you have multiple species living together. 
and so that they use the males will signal to the females uh, like which one is which in these things for breeding purposes because uh, they basically will not glow at all except for during the breeding season. Um, and then the males, in about 80-85% of the species, the males um, will have a very dimorphic light organ system relative to the females. Um, and then that system gets super crazy. Like they have little light channels that will take the light to the top of the head, to the chin, um, on the sides of the bodies. And so the basic idea where we think is going on with them is that they're obviously signaling. We don't really know that much about the reproduction of them. You would think given the sheer numbers that you find in places that we would know. Um, but it's definitely a deficit in trying to sort, figure out what's going on with the the system. Um, it's definitely not generally a camouflage system though. Um, you know, they're in, they're basic, they're not in beaches, but they're not, not in beaches. Like they're in like beach like environments. Um, How's the visibility there? Maybe it helps that. Uh, it's turbid, right? Okay. It may it may be that they need the pattern, like they're, they're forming these mixed schools, and it's super sand. So turbid means there's a bunch of sand and stuff in the water, um, and so it could be that they need like more like the flashing patterns, more like a firefly system, right? But like no one's done any work on their eyes, like like that's the problem with any of these things. Um, and they basically, as soon as they touch a net, they die. So no one, no one's really. Well, they're kept not them. uncommon for food, right? People catch them to eat too, right? I, I feel yeah. like I've seen them oh, in yeah. markets. Oh yeah. Sometimes they're the most common thing in the market. Yeah, yeah. Madagascar, right? You guys bought a whole bunch of them. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, so that like the idea that we don't really know is kind of sad, you know? Because up, you know, at this point, like uh, Margaret McFall Nye, um, Paul Dunlap, John Sparks, uh, presented Jacobardi. Uh, Seishi Kimura, and then Matt and I and a few other people have all done quite a bit of work on them, but not in a situation where we could really kind of get, you know, I, uh, Paul Dunlap and Margaret McFall and I have done the most um, on the sort of living specimens and things like that. I mean, I think... And um, the bacteria, probably. Yeah, right. I mean, so like, you know, and, you know, they're... They were in the early 80s, they were doing things. I mean, she's super at this point, you know, she's in the National Academy of Sciences. Like she's a very prominent scientist. I think she's she's either in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Now. I think Wisconsin. Um, but, you know, like, you know, and she's kind of left that to go do other projects that are in, similar in different ways. But like it's it's a system that really needs somebody where pony fishes naturally live going out and sort of figuring out the system. But I think they're. You know, they did bring some back and keep them alive in Taiwan for a while. But um, again, with the, with the, you know, and that gets into tricky problems. Like if, if they're only doing it during the reproductive season, what is the cue for that? Right. <laughs> right? Is it, can you, can you yeah. simulate it somehow in the lab to, to yeah. actually behave normally? Right. Otherwise, you got to basically leave them in ponds and they die so easily. It, that's yeah. even complicated. So it's they're definitely something that needs work. The ocean. Yeah. I mean, it would, yeah, exactly. They are. Like, but it's just like die. But it, it would be fun to do, but it's just not something I can do in the middle yeah. of Kansas or you guys yeah. can do well in the northern Midwest either. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like there's uh, there's plenty of, uh, you know, Ph.D. projects in there for somebody who's, you know, interested and ambitious. Right. Well, and that's kind of the fun thing about all the deep sea stuff, right? There is so much work still to be done. And it sometimes it feels like we know a lot about these things, but there's still so many kind of underlying mysteries. Um 
it's kind of crazy. Like, I, I feel like we still don't have any kind of good sense of why bacteria go and stay inside those lures, right? There, there have been some studies recently on the genomics of those bacteria um, mm-hmm. relative to other bacteria found in the environment. But, like, in, in terms of the, how the whole mechanisms work, why they stay in those lures and, like, an anglerfish, all that stuff, it's such a mystery. Or how they get in there. When do they go in there? Do they replace them? I, like, Yeah, all of it. So it's crazy. Right. Like, for all we know, they could, just like the flashlight fish, they could actually be passing them on. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just not enough work done on that yet. I mean, it's so hard. Plus, if you yeah, want to do that. access, yeah. I mean, it's like one of these things. Like, you go out on a boat. We were out on a boat. We went out on a boat a couple of years ago now, um, two and a half years ago maybe. And we collected nonstop for what, two and a half days, give or, give or take? Yeah. And we brought yeah. back, we caught, I think, two angler, one or two angler fishes the whole time. So you got the specimen. And they were tiny, too. Yeah. Tiny little guys. And we're at the University of Kansas. Am I going to cut the lure off of the only specimen we got that would be the first one in the collection in a decade or whatever, <laughs> and we only have a handful of them, and then run genomic things on it, or do I want to keep that specimen, like, nice, so that someone can do the work, right? Like, yeah, it's like a, you know, there's like this weird game because these are so rare and it is so expensive to go out there. You kind of hope like one day you're going to pull the net through and just like have 300 female angler fishes in the net and be like, sweet, I can do whatever I want now. Right. Yeah. But it never works. But that the way. math doesn't work out right because it isn't. The estimates are like there's one per cubic kilometer or something like that, just because there's so little nutrients down there to support them. Right, and I think they're probably most of the fish we're getting are things that like live in this habitat that maybe or or whatever we'll get in the, maybe Matt and I will get in our fight over what that is, but there's a <laughs> a group of fish and shrimp and everything that migrate up every single day and move all the way down, um, not all the way down, but like basically we'll go up. Uh, it depends on the how much how bright the moon is, but a couple hundred meters up from the surface, and then it'll go down to maybe twelve hundred fifty fifteen hundred meters down. And we mostly get fish that are in this this layer that's called the deep scattering layer, um, but and I don't think the angler fishes are necessarily migrating with that, so we're only getting them. They don't really seem to be right. Like I don't I don't think of them as migratory. They seem to stick more into their depth layer, where some of the stomiaform, like the dragonfishes and things, migrate. And I think some of the lipoforms migrate or follow them up a little bit anyway. But I don't really think angler fishes is migrating so could- a whole heck of a lot. Right, I also think that like the angler fish. So, yeah, you got to get... so one of the things that at the bottom of this depth range. Yeah, Leo, explain the deep scattering layer. Yeah. Well, so it's and then we can discuss whether it's a habitat or a. <laughs> well, the deep scattering layer, well, not just is, deep is scattering this, layer, like... but also like why do things do vertical migrations? Right. To right, eat so... nutrients. Yeah. Yeah, so there's you get this also in big lakes and reservoirs. Even man-made lakes will get what are called dial migrations. So that means twice a day or once a day they'll go up and once a day they'll go down. And, like, if you think about this on a worldwide scale, it's kind of crazy. So, like, worldwide, every single day in every ocean, there's these migrations of all these different organisms. And so the main reason they go up is to get closer to the surface where there's more productivity. So the you know phytoplankton which is sort of the sort of grass and grasslands of the of the ocean is like these little like you know photosynthetic creatures that are out there that you know either are 
you know, both, you know, some of them are just get all their energy from the sun and some of them also can eat things and things like that. Um, but they basically have the ability to do primary production. And so things will swim up to what get closer. people usually to think of as plankton. Yeah. But a lot of that will be zooplankton, animals and plankton, right? Like, but a lot of, pl- right. so half of that whole layer up there at the top of the ocean surface provides nutrients for all kinds of things like whales and large megafauna. Like so many of the large aquatic megafauna feed on that. And then all these deep sea things take advantage of that resource as well. Like in an open ocean setting that's kind of bereft of nutrients, that is one of the most nutrient-rich places to go. Right. I mean, and that's where all the energy eventually is coming from, right? Almost nothing is going to be like some coastal fish wanders out into the open ocean and something eats (laughs) it, right? It's all going to be produced itself within this open water habitat. And so the idea is that a bunch of things that are in the deep, it is worth this giant migration, right? Like these are things that are... Smaller than the pink, well, they can be as small as something like your pinky nail all the way to like, you know, a couple meters, I suppose a a few of them will be, but most of them are smaller. Um, And they're going to migrate, you know, a thousand meters every day, right? Like, just think about, I don't want to like, not smart enough to do the math quickly, but like, you know, this would be, you know, you know, like basically a marathon every day for a human to like go up and back down, uh, sort of. Going after I guess food. that's what people do when they run to get beer, right? They go on their marathon, get beer at the end, run back. <laughs> <laughs> and <Yeah>. so, <laughs> none of us though, because we don't run. I don't think the three of us are like. I'm not sure we've ever ran anywhere. Maybe Leo has. I don't think Kevin has, and nope. I definitely haven't. <laughs> and I also don't. Also, can't drink beer, so that, that knocked that out too. But they, you know, the beer, but not the but, running part. <laughs> yeah, no but running. they definitely. But no at running. the at the bottom of that depth, they're actually in often we would in be really or bad in. deep sea fish. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just like, we wouldn't do this at all. We'd all be benthic deep sea fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just lay on the bottom. This is good. Yeah. It's food gonna swing by soon because I, I, I I'm kind of hungry. Yeah, we'd be horrible pelagic deep sea fish. Yeah, no, we're not. You know, not not our thing. But so like the idea is at the bottom of this of this daily migration. They're going to be out of the sunlight, so they're going to be, when the sun is all the way up, they're going to be at the bottom. That bottom is also kind of coincides with what's called the oxygen minimum zone of the ocean, so there's not much oxygen down there, so you're not going to have big predators in there, right? So this is why I don't think the anglerfishes are living in there, right? Like, we might get the anglerfishes that are below the oxygen minimum zone, but they have, like, these really small gill slits. Like, they're, they're, nothing about their respiratory system suggests that they would be anywhere near the oxygen minimum zone. And it is really low there. I mean, you're also going through, like, a thermocline, so that's a big temperature shift. Like, the whole, you know, you're having the giant change in the light. Like, all these things are kind of changing in that, migra- that area that they're migrating. Um, you know, so it's just like a dramatic shift. And so you're going to get some animals that are above it, some that are below it. And there's this one group of, you know, shrimps and squids and fish that kind of migrates every day but it's mostly to try and get energy from above and then they you know a lot of these things will reproduce and have their babies at the surface though so like this is just when they're like sort of juveniles and adults are going to make this daily migration but it's it's so thick with animals that like we the reason it's called the deep scattering layer is it you know perturbed like the way we get the depths of the ocean it's you know modern times we would send a sound wave down and then measure how long it takes to come back and that would give you sort of the depth that like you could you knew how fast the sound wave would travel through water and what happened was these things were so deep or so dense that they would reflect the sound wave back up and so we actually misjudged the depth of the ocean a lot of places and you know it didn't take us forever to figure it out but we were still figuring this stuff out you know world war ii era right like this is 
some of the stuff is, you know, in our parents' lifetimes. Well, it's military-related, right, because they had to figure yeah. this stuff out for submarines. I think you right. mentioned that before. Yeah, like, and so that's the trick with it. So this is this layer. It moves every day. It's, you know, and it's doing this basically to move energy. Well, it's doing it to survive, but the byproduct is that its energy is moving from the surface to deeper water. And so some things will want to pick, things closer to the bottom will want to pick it off things at the bottom of that migration, and some surface things will want to pick it off at the top. And then some things are following their, like, they're preying on these things, making the migration too, right? So they're also doing the migration following other smaller fish. Right, probably everything that's not bioluminescent is probably doing that. <laughs> and some of the bioluminescent things are. Yeah. Right, because something has amazing. to it. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's the way biggest migration on Earth. None of this yeah. African grassland, right. monarch yeah. butterfly. No caribou, no wildebeest. No, none of this BS. Like, this is the, yeah. this is the migration. The world's smallest macroscopic, but barely macroscopic. Yeah, every day. Right. Yeah, every day, <laughs> up and down. They're hiking up and down, like the equivalent of whatever it is, right? I don't know the math, but they're climbing up and down Everest every day to follow their food. So what causes the oxygen minimum to bottom out right at that right at that layer? Like why is it greater above and below? Uh, so the reason it's greater above is because you're getting surface water interacting with the water, bringing it down. And then the reason it's greater below is because in the area around the Weddell Sea in Antarctica and in the area around sort of between Canada and the western side of Greenland, uh, you have two areas uh, in the world where water freezes so fast because it's so cold that it forms, it basically forms ice sort of immediately. And when it does that, it salts out the salt out of those ice cubes, uh, creating denser water in those areas. And so when the water when the when the water gets denser, it's dragged to the bottom of the ocean, um, like sort of instantly. And it's so it's not only is it cold because you're at the poles, but it's also surface water and so you have like this super basically as oxygenated as water it can be um and it's dragged down to the bottom and then it hits the bottom and then basically spreads out like a conveyor belt um and it's the breakdown of that that when you watch day after tomorrow or anything like that like that's the that breakdown of the north atlantic deep water current is what will ruin the climate of the world um if it happens and that's why we're about such things but anyway that brings the oxygen high highly oxygenated water at the bottom nothing there's not that much stuff living at the bottom and so it doesn't really deplete as it slowly works its way back up from the bottom up to the surface it's you know the few limited things that are living down there slowly depleted but it's minimal and so there just happens to, there has to be a point somewhere between those two where you hit the minimum i mean just and it just happens to be you know and some of it's like the temperatures shift through the thermocline as you get down into there and things like um but a bunch of, it's just a bunch of things coming together but it's basically this current that takes the makes it more oxygenated at the bottom. And yeah. so, what depth is that? This oxygen minimum does it vary? Um, I'm sure it varies to some degree, and it's got to be different in the summer versus winter and things like that. But it, it, in general, I always kind of think it about in my head. It's 1,200 meters. Like okay. where exactly it is probably varies worldwide and things like that. Um, but yeah, but that's why you get it. And so you have things like so. If anyone have you ever heard of like possum shrimp, like these mysid shrimp. Um, they're, you know, one of the various kinds of like krilly like things they live and thrive in the oxygen minimum zone. So they're like 80% gills 
<laughs> right? And they're called possum shrimp because the babies grow up basically in those gills. I always assume that there's some amount of oxygen exchange from the from the parent to the offspring, but I don't actually never read enough to know that. But I just assume that the you know something about you know they're just like built you know for that and you know evolved in that environment to thrive there. And so they're there, whereas euphausids are everywhere else, right? So the krill proper are not in the in the in this oxygen minimum zone and sort of you know they're basically everywhere else right so like one of them thrives there and one of them doesn't and so they are each happy and sort of have evolved into their individual sort of niche there i assume there's very uh very few predators of those shrimp there i mean there's probably some but yeah i mean they're certainly not there 24 hours a day right most of their predators are going to be the same thing that are moving up and down following the everybody else. Because at the bottom of the day, it's presumably those, those mice and shrimp are with everybody else that are in the deep scattering layer. There's probably some point where they're all together. So they're going to, the predators will be there. And for all I know, the mice are smart enough to go down or something. Like, there's certainly not enough known about that kind of stuff. So Super do you think, cool. so is it a habitat? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Kevin can be context. the decide Yes, for some for some context, yeah. once upon a time, Leo and I were like kind of tasked with designing a deep scattering layer like map. Wasn't that for like an exhibit at the Field Probably. Museum? And then I, it it set off a whole discussion on like how to. I don't even think in the end it ever got created. Right? It was like they're gonna make this giant like display with kind of the different layers of the ocean, and we had this whole thing about the deep scattering layer being in it. And I don't even remember. Did it actually even end up in the exhibit? Like. Uh, no, it didn't get put into the Creatures Light exhibit, but we're now making that again, at the, this time at the University of Kansas. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so it came back. <laughs> I remember we had this discussion about this and um, this concept of whether the deep scattering layer itself is a habitat, which I believe is what Leo was arguing for at the time. Maybe he still is arguing for that. And to me, it's just a migration, as you just described it about for the last like 10 minutes and never said the word habitat once. I'm not sure how you'd argue it's a habitat. <laughs> but like for me, it is a migration of organisms moving through various habitats. But, but it I wasn't don't know the question of whether it was a it wasn't I wasn't denying it was a migration. The question is whether like it's somehow independent its own thing from, you know, its own habitat. If you're always in this thing. I think when we had this argument, yeah, I think I think it's maybe you could argue it's an ecosystem or it has its own complex food web, but I don't think it's a habitat per se in the sense of, you know, like having, I don't know, like shelter or something. Like I just don't see it as like a habitat, but I could easily see an argument that it's an, an ecosystem. It's obviously very complex food webs come out of there and like a community like that moves on mass together, but like, yeah. It, I I wouldn't classify it as a habitat per se myself. So a habitat it like it would turn sorry. I was just gonna say a habitat is defined as the natural home or environment of an animal. Plant right, but the home is the ocean. <laughs> I think that's see, we're already bringing yeah, back this I can remember all the, the talking points right now. This comes down and to I, a philosophical right thing about how you define a habitat and also how you define an ecosystem, right? Because an ecosystem is also in some ways uh, involves abiotic right abiotic factors which could include yeah but like the, the deep scattering habitat. layer is not a home right like it's like it's like the ocean is the home they're just migrating through parts of it it's just you know <laughs> it's right, like it the birds on a migratory antarctica, path antarctica, it's antarctica not, in the, an antarctic marine fish is in the ocean as is a coral reef fish 
right? Like that. Sure. The ocean is but they're in different. But but they're in different habitats even within that. So like, but I don't think you could. I don't think there's anything about the deep scat. Like the deep scattering layer to me is just like a. It's just a mass migration. It's not a habitat in and of itself. Um, I think we agreed but, it was a community. Yeah, it's definitely a community. And so for the sure. only question is whether it's an ecosystem or a habitat or something I would say else. ecosystem. But what do you think there, Kevin? Mm, that's a tough one. Like I guess it would also uh, come down to like what are some analogs like sargasso for instance? How would you classify that? Is that a habitat, a community, an ecosystem, like all three? Right, cuz I'm just trying to think of what other things are. So why do you explain what, what a sargasso what the sargasso sea is? Oh, me? It's yeah. just um it's just a mass of like this um I'm not exactly sure what the taxonomic grouping is, but what you would think of as like seaweed, essentially, and it's not tethered or moored to anything. And so it just forms this huge mat, if you will, that occupies the upper few, like, you know, like, I don't know, maybe less than a meter's worth or so of the uh, ocean surface. And then as a result, because it's so stable and is reliably there, there's an entire ecosystem, however you want to describe it, of different organisms. To me, that's more like a kelp forest. That right, is so I, more definably like a habitat. Right. So I only throw out the sargassum thing because it's not physically attached. I'm just trying. I, if yeah, it's floating. Any, right. Yeah. It's like right. It's floating. like I'm just trying to think of like other analogs to see if there's a way to like get, you know, you know, like try to get like a grasp of it. Right. Because it's like the thing that makes it tricky. I'm assuming the reason why you're um, uh, against it, Matt, is that it's it's. Uh, a um it's an ephemeral or temporary like movement of biological like a biomass yeah it is and like and for like if you know like a kelp forest or a coral reef for this or this like um like sargassum it's like in those contexts there are light there are key species there that form the habitat on some level that provide protection and things in this case it's basically just a mass of things migrating it's like you know it's like a, a herd of organisms moving across africa right like it's like that is not a habitat in and of itself. It's just a mass community on the move that, you know, goes back and forth depending but, on seasons. But if the grass was able to run <laughs> and so that the, the migration across Africa is because they were actually physically chasing the grass, right? Like that's the whole problem is like I totally agree with everything. And it's sort of unlike my nor- the one's normal view, uh, like an ecosystem is defined by its physical environment as much as anything. And I would say that there's not a physical environment when you have when you're talking about midwater things, right? That's like the problem, which is why you're going to well, make the, the argument. Well, the, the water right? yeah, is the physical environment. There is water. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's like the oxygen is changing dramatically. Like right. the temperature is changing dramatically, the light is changing dramatically. But that's true for lots of things that migrate. I mean, like birds that migrate go through obviously giant temperatures, like shifts. Like that's part of the reason they do it. Oh, I, I'm not saying I. Yeah, I, but they're going from one. But you're also not saying that they're staying in the same habitat, right? They're going from one habitat to the other, like right. But like the habitat that so like the habitat the the deep scattering layer organisms start at to me is different. Like if something starts a thousand meters down and then it ends up to eat at the epipelagic, like the habitat the epipelagic is pretty different than a thousand meters down. Oh, oh I'm like not in my mind. They're passing through different habitats. But the deep scattering layer itself is not a habitat. It's just the name we've given this migration or this like community. Right. I mean, the, the tricky part with this is like it is defined by itself, right? Like the reason I don't know what to do with it, and that's why Kevin trying to find an analog is like the exact right way to try and get at this. Um, but the pro- and the problem is that like 
if a few of them stopped going, it would definitely wouldn't be a habitat. But since they're always together all the time doing the exact same thing, it's complicated to me. It's not. But certainly the taxonomic composition in the Atlantic is somewhat different than in the Pacific. It's like it can't it's not exactly the exact same composition. I mean, no, they're no, probably no. analogs in like same species in different groups, but or same species or different. Sorry, different species across some of the same groups. But I just the think compositions. That, like, what if we like, used uh, when sorry, you're not ahead. at the all I was going to say is when you're not at one of the extremes, everything in there is migrating. Right. Yeah. And that's what's weird is that when it's there, I understand that when you're at the the extremes, you can define it some other way, right? The question is like the only thing that unites all anything, and you know, so like that's the complicate. The other complication, of course, with this and why it, couldn't, it might not be able to be a habitat is because you do have like a complete shift, right? Like habitat sounds like something that should be stable, yeah, <laughs> and so it's hard for a constantly moving, you know thing to be a stable i just always think it's like i don't know what to do with it it's i don't know if there's an analog right no i was just thinking of uh and again i even using this as an analog right it runs into the whole issue where it's like can the habitat be both biotic and you know on the move is um what are those the uh the various army ants that roam around in south america and then they cause such major disruption that there's entire right um there's species and other species that rely on them for following they, their wake <laughs> right exactly because they're yeah. so not destructive destruct destructive but like disruptive that other yeah. things are actually count on that to sort of survive would you consider the 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 huge the host the horde of the army ant its own habitat and it's like it's tricky right because it's moving through um a rainforest habitat but is the mat of like ants as dense as they are necessarily the it's the only it's the only analog I can think of that right has this whole sort of right uh, but the, the difference like is, is every single organism is basically in that environment is doing this right like mm -hmm. and that's the tricky part it's definitely like and that's and I don't know if there's like an answer right like this feels like it should be like this would be like a fun orals question right yeah yeah it would definitely be a good orals question maybe I'll ask you know. Renee yeah <laughs> <laughs> If cut she's listening out. now, she yeah. has like a hint. Yeah, but... cut that part out, Matt, so it'll come as a surprise in like a year or so. <laughs> hey, Renee, I got a funny question for you. No, what and, you, I, and you I don't actually feel that strongly. I just, I, I, I am just not I mean, sure what it is. This says you now. I remember when we had this discussion, you know, a few years ago. It was. Uh, I don't think either of us were angry, but it sounded like we were loud enough that people passing by were like, "Whoa." <laughs> Like, what are they arguing about? Is yeah, scattering and I don't think either of us like actually really okay. like. Much. And it and was just, just like all about this like off. diagram for a thing that never even got made. <laughs> but we spent hours sitting there arguing about this like this like possible exhibit diagram, and just like, oh, is this how should the deep scattering layer be portrayed? Is it a habitat? Is it this? Is it that? And have you guys yeah, asked, and, ever asked a philosopher about the identity? It, the identity, uh -huh. right? Right. It's like an identity issue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like, if you, like, you know, Google it or something like that, like, it always gives it, like, they call it, the, like, a, you know, it's given to the, the layer of the Earth, and it's just, like, I don't even know what to do with that, right? Because, like, it's a mobile layer. I, even layer bothers yeah. me. Yeah, layer isn't really right. To me, it's just this, like, nomadic community that migrates en masse and comes up and down, up and down. Right. I don't know. I still think it's fun. But it's, 
Well, it's definitely fun and unique, and that's like you know, it's 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 certainly awesome, and has led yeah. to all kinds of cool evolutionary adaptations, and is just probably like a lot of fun to study from an ecological perspective too, because there's nothing like it. Um, but you know, when it comes to designing a graphic for it, <laughs> no, but it's just like really, really, what's important? You know, how it's going to show up on this graphic that never showed up in an exhibit. Yeah, it's just a big blobby mass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I think it's like really important to just stress like you go like okay what does it really matter how like deep how like how many of these things can there be but it's like the single most common vertebrate on Earth is in this environment right and that and that, what is it that's in case like, people well I mean it's, the bristle mouth which one I don't know is actually the most common yeah, whether it's gonna be Sonia finis or the you know Gonis, you know whatever like, come on between them and larynfish you're talking about a ton of biomass. Well, actually, literally like, in this case, like, no, yeah. you're, tons you're talking, and tons of you're talking about 600 million metric tons of biomass. I yep. just looked them up a couple yeah. while, but like, oh, okay. of, <laughs> like, so just lantern fishes and bristlemouths are supposed to account for 75 to 80 percent of all deep sea fish biomass. Right. So uh, across this giant environment that we already said is the biggest environment on Earth. Um, obviously, that's a little goofy because, you know, all of the ocean is bigger than this. But like, you know, that aside. It's the largest oceanic environment. Like, you know, if you're dealing with 70, 80% of that, and it's just two groups of fish, one genus of one thing and one family of another thing, like, uh, accounting for all that, that means that all of the food, like, that eventually, like, goes into, like, you know, the whole food chain is reliant on these things moving up and down this thing, right? All the food that everything on the bottom is basically going to work its way eventually, like, from, it's not all like whales dying and falling to the bottom. It's all these small fishes that are eating the things off the surface and bringing them down that are then eaten by bigger things, right? Like it's super crazy to like think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and it's like just think about how different the Earth would be if all of a sudden these all disappeared or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've googled this about five thousand times trying to decide what anyone will call it, and they basically won't. They just sort of cheat around it, so they won't. No one will ever answer our, our debate. Right. They all just, <laughs> it's a zone or it's a layer. It's always like some third party thing. And maybe that's the best way to treat it. But it's annoying nonetheless. I, I think it's just like, I, why can't it just be? Why can't it just be a migration? It just is, right? Like, it's just this like traveling show. You well, know? I, because I think, like, to say, like, I think it's like, this gets at like the thing I was complaining about at the beginning. But like, like, I think that the deep sea habitat is not a thing, right? Like, the question is, you have all these. Well, that yeah, deep, sure. It's like calling it the benthic, ocean, right? Like that's the. Yeah, but you have benthic deep sea animals, right? And there's a lot of those. Oh yeah, no, there's absolutely tons of differences depending on where they live. So and, and, and then, different adaptations for where they live. Yeah, but like, and so you have the ones that live on the bottom. You have ones that live kind of near the bottom. You have ones that live at the surface, like a flying fish or something. And then you have. You know, and then there's some that are kind of everywhere, like angler fishes and some of your lizard fishes, like the giganturids or something like that, the telescope eyes or something, are probably not migrating and are just hanging out. And then you yeah, have this thing that moves up depth. and down through all this, right? And it's like, so what the hell is that, right? <laughs> like, it's a like, migration. <laughs> I know, but it's every day. It's all different when it happens every and day. And as you just as you just described, it's like moving through all these different habitats. I think part of it too, right, is it's like um, – it is – it's like it, it is moving all the time, but it's also moving relative to the abiotic 
uh, factors that come into play, right? In some ways, it's moving up toward the photic zone and then away from the photic zone. And that's also what's creating this kind of trickiness where it tr makes it difficult to define as its own habitat because it's also defined by where is it relative to other things in the water column. But in the end, the entire reason it's moving is because of the food web. Like it's going up to get food. Yes. Yeah, like so, well, but it's, I mean, but it's also moving. But no, it, if it were it just down. no, but it would it would just stay there if it was just the food, right? It also has to go down into the deep for the protection of the dark and the protection of the oxygen minimum zone, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, like, that's the complication, right? Like, I mean, there there probably isn't anything else that's like that. I mean, obviously, there's things that are similar in in some lakes, like, but it's not. No, no, it's all, it's it's pretty unique. It's it's certainly a unique system, and very cool system. Still, just want to call it a habitat. <laughs> you can call it a habitat. <laughs> I'm going to stick just, with migration, but maybe this just has to be one of those things where you have to like agree to disagree. Like the whole the age old argument: our virus is life. I definitely think that the midwater. Ocean deep midwater is a habitat. The question is whether this yeah. is a subgroup of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Because I think that is broken down. Case. Right, because you talk about epipelagic, right? Mesopelagic, bathypelagic, abyssopelagic, right? Like, so that is already recognized to some degree as well. Right. But are those. And, like, in my mind, this is a migration through those kinds of things. I know, but that's super <laughs> confusing. Yeah, in a way. Like, it's kind of, you know. Is there any it's, other it's, thing on Earth where something lives in two habitats every day or two or more habitats every day? But does uh, does the everyday have to uh, aspect uh, be that important? Because, right, temporally, you could stretch that out and be like, oh, these are groups that live in two different habitats in different months or different parts of the year. Every day, you know, I wake up. I eat some, you know, I eat some food. I go to work to make money so I can get more food. And then I go home and, you know, there's little micro hat, like <laughs> passing through habitat. Yeah, no, coming no, back. no. Same habitat. <laughs> Same habitat. Yeah, I don't know. My house is yeah, a different habitat North than America. outside. Come like a month or two from now, the outside is going to be like Antarctica. And yeah, but you spend like no time outside. I know because I also spend no time <laughs> outside even when the, when it becomes like, uh, yeah, exactly, a milder version of Antarctica outside. But I have to leave the house to go get food and then I come back. Yeah, I do I too. Mean, Except are, we're all like, on some level, aren't we just like the landfish? We're just coming up, getting our food, going back home. No. Right? Getting up, going up to get food, come back, go home, live in the dark home where it's nice and safe. All those predators out <laughs> to get us. Yeah. What would okay. those be? The T-Rex. The T-Rexes. <laughs> yeah. Wow, we killed right. all of our predators. If, if it, you know, no Smilodon, no saber-toothed cat's going to grab you on the way to work. But it right, could have exactly. happened uh, once upon a time. Yeah. And let's be honest, as, I, as I've had this conversation with my students all the time in class whenever I get to evolution, just remember, it's like if we were still eking out a living on the plains of the Serengeti, we'd all be dead. None of us would have made it. We all would have gotten selected out. Yeah, lions would have taken us by now. Yeah, well, you know, it's like, or even just a giant sloth that just like sat. Yeah, on exactly. You. Slowly, oh, it's like that scene in Austin Powers. No, the giant sloth is coming for me, and you still can't get away. Yeah. No, but it's like you know, like I, I, you know, mention it all the time to the students. Like, do you wear corrective lenses? Did you ever have to go in for surgery? Did you ever have a blood transfusion? Did you get like you know, uh, whatever? Like, um, uh, did you get um, vaccines? You know, it's like literally, if you answer yes to any of these things, oh, you probably would have died. You know if we were still somehow like trying to make a living and under selection pressure, cause let's be honest. 
we are not cut out for, you know, we are not cut out for being, you know, out in the world, minus technology and all that. Thank God for technology, fire, <laughs> hot and cold running water, electricity, wireless internet. Cooked meat, just cooked yeah. meat. God, raw meat is so gross. Can you imagine? Video uh, games. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Movies. movies. Yeah, movies. Yeah. Television. I like I like raw fish. Like I I like there's lots of raw meat I like. I think I could I could think I could sustain myself on raw beef. No, come on. Oh god. If I if I had to, I think I could do it. Well no, it's okay, let's start it's with like... killing the cow. Let's see you yeah. kill the cow. First, let's go yeah. actually like some buffalo, In the absence wild of an buffalo. air hammer and like a shoot, right? You're not getting that cow. That cow is trampling your ass. Well, I didn't say I'd be hunting the cow. I'm just saying I would eat the cow. Well, how are you well, going to get it? Thing... You got to fight it rotting on the bottom? That's how it's full of bacteria. No, I would be, I would do like what Kevin was talking about with the army ants. I would just follow a trail of like saber toothed tigers and like wait for something to take an animal and then in their wake. And, and you know what? The saber-toothed tiger would be like, huh, I'm going to go for the low-hanging fruit. Why try to bring down this mammoth? Look at the squishy human I could easily eat that's right over here. I can smell it and see it and hear it because it's thrashing around and terrible you know, at surviving. You just have to make yourself smell so bad that it wouldn't be interested. I mean, the other thing we don't even think about, right? Wait, well, like, we oh, know yeah, that, that is Matt's strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, as always, uh, we'd like to begin end by thanking all of our listeners for en- any feedback we get. Uh, we're getting pretty excited. We're getting more downloads, um, you know, and it's always exciting to get continue to get more downloads. Uh, some of our the favorite episodes we've had were actually recommended by some of our listeners. If there's anything you ever want us to talk about, uh, do please feel free to tweet at us with questions or with ideas or things you're just interested in. Um, and as always, we'd love to get more reviews on iTunes. Um, if you have any sort of feedback for us, the easiest way to reach us are on Twitter. You can reach Matt at, at Bathy Taroas, the uh, tripod fish we talked about this week. So that's at B-A-T-H-Y-P-T-E-R-O-I-S. You can always reach me, Leo, uh, at Fish Phylogeny, F-I-S-H-P-H-Y-L-O-G-E-N-Y. And then if you want to reach Kevin or all of us as a group or anything like that, the best way to reach us is at our podcast uh twitter account so that's at underscore the fishmongers uh so thank you again as always and we will talk to you next week